Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, you are listening to Freight 360. Whether it's breaking news, tips to increase your business, or just some good old sports talk, this podcast is all about having a conversation about the world of freight. I'm your host, Nate Cross. And Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. All right, welcome back for episode 82 of Freight 360. Another great episode for you folks this week. We've got Trey Griggs with Lean Solutions Group on with us again. We did a great or a great episode last week, and this week we're going to continue that conversation and focus on sales and marketing as it relates to your freight brokerage business. So, Trey, great to have you back again. Always good to be back with you guys. Thanks for having me on two weeks in a row. Feeling special. Yeah, we're honored. Ben, how are you doing today? Doing well. Good stuff. Good stuff. So if you guys are first-time listeners, welcome to Freight 360. If you've been with us for a while, welcome back for another episode. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us that five-star review. We're going to get into some sports here real quick. And while we're talking sports, I'm going to actually pull up some of our reviews because we haven't read a live one in a little while. But um, sports, Trey, you brought up NCAA, obviously, March Madness. We're heading into Final Four here. Actually, um, what is it? It kind of spreads out now, right? We've got like a week break and then another week break before the championship game. How does this work? I forget. No, I think that the championship game, is, I believe it's on uh, uh, Monday, next Monday. You know, Saturday wow. and Monday, I believe, is the, the semifinals and the finals. I think what you're thinking about is Super Bowl. Super Bowl takes the two-week break. No, I know. Between I thought there was the like championship a games to the Super Bowl. I, there was a I don't think there is with March Madness. Well, let's just let's check. Yeah, we'll check it out. It but but it's but it's exciting. It's uh it's a uh, final four weekend. But it was a crazy weekend this weekend. Some of the games were great. You saw the you know the, the one of the women's uh, games between UConn and Baylor was a really an epic battle, a two point game, and um, pretty pretty significant foul at the end that did get called. And uh, so it's a little controversial, but they let them play, and it was a very very physical game throughout. But uh, on the men's side, I mean, I th- we talked about it last week. So many teams that nobody expected to you know, to make it, um, you see Houston in there. I don't think, I mean, Houston's a good team. There were two seeds. So clearly they had a good season, but again, it's kind of still a no name. And then of course, UCLA out of the PAC 12 as an 11 seed. No, nobody saw that coming. That kind of blew up my bracket because I had Michigan. So, well, Michigan really upset me last night. And I think I lost a couple hundred dollars betting on them. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it seemed like a sure bet, you know, number 11 UCLA coming out of the PAC 12, but PAC 12 was surprisingly good in the tournament you know they had a lot of teams they had three teams teams in elite eight which was impressive yeah oh yeah so yeah it's uh march i'm sorry april 3rd and then april 5th yeah so it's only two days in between i i yeah i'm just an idiot apparently when it comes to basketball <laughs> not my I didn't say forte. It. i so, didn't say it and uh but it's good yeah you know one of the things we did just uh we talked about last week we did the, the uh, bracket for our customers and some of our employees at lean and uh we got some really uh incredible uh, brackets mike foy is still pretty close to the top i i almost had all four final four teams then michigan blew it and so i had a, i was feeling good about it but now I'm, I'm gonna start falling down as well but it's pretty cool Love it. Love it. Other news in sports. What do we got here? We've got uh, NFL. I want to talk about, I, yeah, it, it's, it's crazy. You got the new 17 game season. I'm You know, I know you're loving that, Nate. Uh, I we do talked like about it. that earlier. You know, it's, it's one I'm, more week that it actually matters to watch. Like I always get excited. I'll watch preseason. <laughs> Obviously we didn't get it last year, but uh, it's funny. Cause a lot of the people are like the players are unhappy about it and blah, blah, blah. They want to get paid more for playing an extra game. And in my opinion, like, you're not playing an extra game. You're still playing 20 games. You're just not watching the second, third, and fourth stringers play in preseason. You're 
you're not going to get benched for one of those. Now you're going to actually be playing them. You're going to be starting. So if you're a player who loves to play, I think, I think they're going to love it for some of those that, you know, are more concerned about their, their, you know, their, their health, their body, you know, that kind of thing. They might be a little disappointed, but I agree with you. Preseason is kind of, I mean, I don't even pay attention to preseason, but when the season starts, it's totally different. So I'm, I'm excited about it as well. So interlude here, I got a five-star review I want to read off. This is from Atili Hall or Shio. I don't know what the, okay. Anyway, Hall Global Logistics. So make sure you check them out if, uh, if you want to find a, a, an awesome logistics company that listens to our show. They said, love the insight, humor, and direction that these two convey. Definitely a great duo, and both are well-versed in transportation and logistics. Thank you for your words of wisdom, and your guests are well-picked and moderated. Trey, you're one of the guests. Hey, I don't want to say we moderate good. you. I think we, uh, <laughs> we, we let you roll. With that's, a, that's, that's a weird verb to use in that context. <laughs> yeah. It almost sounds like we're holding you back. So That's a little, little odd. A little odd. Good review. Well, of course. I mean, you know, I'm not surprised to hear that you guys do a great job. So, um, NF or NHL, real quick too. There was a ref that got fired for uh, being on a hot mic and basically admitted that this is awesome. He did not call a penalty on I forget which team it was because he was basically giving them a freebie because of another bad call earlier in the game. And like, you know, it probably happens more than you think about. Oh, but when you're on a hot happen mic, all the time. Everybody that's watching from home and everyone in the stands or in the in the arena, it's uh, it's a you get a little bit of uh, you get a little bit of a spotlight there on yourself. So and he lost his job. I I loved it though. I'm I'm sad the guy lost his job. I, I sometimes I feel like you know when people are honest, they get penalized more than people that are that are not. Obviously, the hot mic issue makes it a big deal. But you know, I, I you got to think that you know umpires, major league umpires, are calling balls and strikes, kind of thinking through that, or uh, you know basketball officials, you know making calls throughout the game that. I mean, you got to think that there's got to be a little bit of human bias in there. They can't be perfect. Yeah. They're human like us. So I think that's absolutely true. But I think as human beings, we try to ignore those things because the implications, we don't have solutions for them. Like, for instance, baseball, right? This guy has a bad call and then he makes up for it with another bad call, right? Which means we've now have two <laughs> bad calls and the guy at bat now all of a sudden gets penalized financially because all of a sudden his stats go down because the umpire feels bad, right? Yeah. Like there's a lot. And now with gambling becoming more and more prevalent mainstream, like oh, this is going to become more and huge. more of an issue. Like, so that's the one, that's the one thing with money. baseball that surprises me is when they introduced instant replay, it, it was kind of controversial because now you can look back and slow it down and see, was he safe? Was microseconds? And then, right. on, but then on the flip side, you still have an ump behind the plate calling balls and strikes, right? But you'll be watching and they, on TV. And they clearly have the strike zone, right? Exactly. See, like they'll have the 3D ones and they're like, that was not in the strike zone. Or that you, was you gotta that think was a strike this. and they called it a ball. Like, so. Tennis still has line judges as well. And this blows me away because if they miss it, they can go and actually look at where the ball hit electronically and yep. make a determination. Like I, I still don't understand why we have officials in some of these sports. You know, tennis, there's, there, I don't think there should be line line judges in, in tennis anymore. There shouldn't, you don't need a, a ref in baseball to be calling balls and strikes. You know, so I don't even think you'd need him to call safe or out on a, like a, like a, a play at first, you know, where but yeah. there's just so many nuances. You have to have a little human, you know, perspective or else it would take forever. I get that. But some of these sports, I think we would have been to the place where balls and strikes are now called electronically. There's just no, there's no need for the human component. It's an interesting take. And then we had to wonder what happens if the technology malfunctions and there's not a ref there to, to back it up. I don't know. 
<laughs> if it a pitcher makes a pitch and there's no call, yeah, and the rest like, uh, look good. I guess it doesn't Let's count. just call the strike. <laughs> Do it again. Uh, and Ben, I think you're right. Just to talk on that, betting is going to change everything because I mean, and and one bad call is going to have a different impact than another bad call. You know, so yeah. if you have a bad call and you try to make up for it with another one, that one might be a two-run bad call where the other one was just you know. A, a, a runner at first, for example. I mean, just whatever. There's there's different. Well, and even more so, like, yeah, and I was like, even more so than the games because, like, individual players have individual incentives in their contracts. And absolutely, every one of those calls affects how much money they're going to make every single right. time. First base umpire calls a guy safe yeah. on a hit and it's his 200th hit and he gets a bonus as a result or, right. or the opposite, you know? But there's the other yeah. side. I think there's tradition and consistency mm. along with anything, right? One, you need somebody on the field so the players know what's going on. So somebody has to be there, even if the computer does it regardless. The second thing is, I think if you want to keep it consistent and tradition's important, and baseball is a great example of why tradition's important, I think we value that. That's why we value baseball in a lot of ways. And if you're comparing people playing under different scenarios versus other people, like that's why they still use wooden bats. It's not because it's the best material to make it out of. It's because they've been using the same material for some tradition for years. And who would the manager go out and argue with if there was no umpire out, you know, on the field? I mean, that's the part of the game we all love, right? When yeah, there's a gonna, good argument going on, you know, or a I mean, would they go out and argue with the other manager? Maybe. I mean, would they go to the bad boy and get in his face? I mean, what would they do? I don't know. File they, a they go support argue with the, with the guy that's department. That's not a ball. That was a strike. Somebody file us. <laughs> right. Your machine's ticket. broken. That's right. Get that <laughs> tech support. This is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> love it. All right, let's talk about some uh, sales and marketing. Actually, I have one more thing to mention real quick. Uh, if you're a TIA member, Ben and I actually did a lunch and learn. We, we like guest hosted a lunch and learn yesterday on prospecting with a purpose. Um, I believe if you, I don't know if you get it. I think if you have the new broker success package through them, you get free access to it. Otherwise, I think they were selling it for like 99 bucks, but really great conversation. All the folks that were on there um, asked great questions and we dug into uh, a lot of good sales tips, and it's it's a good segue into today's episode because sales is a fundamental part of any organization, essentially, right? But especially when it comes to freight and building and maintaining relationships. Trey, I know you even, one of the key points you put in here is that as you're building a company, the the founders are the first salespeople. So I wanted to get right into the sales and marketing episode here. Um, talk to us a little bit about that philosophy and and really where the tone is set when it comes to sales. Well, first of all, I was glad to see you guys. I was pretty excited to see you guys doing a TI Lunch and Learn. Those are great. And I'm sure the content was great. I'm looking forward to listening to it. I wasn't able to make it yesterday, but I'm looking forward to listening to it. We're TI members as well. You know, Robert Cadena, our CDO is a um, you know, director circle member. So we love that organization and uh, just excited to see you guys getting a chance to share your wealth of knowledge with them. So that's cool. Um, you know, as far to get to your point about, you know, founders being the first CEOs, you know, when you think about the evolution of, of any company and how it starts, it usually starts with one or two people with an idea. And they start the company and they're kind of it for a long time. They have to, you know, develop it and they might have some funding. They might be able to hire a few people to help out. But, you know, what ends up happening is they have this idea and then they got to go out and try to sell it to somebody. And let's say that they, you know, maybe sell it to four or five initial customers, some beta customers to get started. Well, once they get them on board, now they have to transition their, their thoughts. They now need to, um, you know, invoice and collect money. They need to have operational support to make sure that what they sold actually works and develops and grows. If it's a technology product, they need development. I mean, that's a 
big push at the beginning. Make sure your development you just is constantly growing. And, um, and you have all these different focuses. And a lot of times sales is kind of forgot about because of the nature of evolution of companies. And sales, I, it's, it's funny to me. I find companies that seem to be pretty mature companies that haven't really thought intentionally about the sales process uh, or the marketing process that we're going to talk about today. It seems like one of the last departments that they really try to focus on. And when they do it, you know, most CEOs are, let me, let me go back, not CEOs, most founders are founders because they're good at creating a product or a service. Like that's their strength. You know, that's what they were able to, to come up with. They're generally not salespeople, but they try to be salespeople. And then they try to potentially lead a sales department or the, their thought is, well, let me just hire some experienced sales reps and they'll figure it out for me. You know, and, and again, there's just, there's not a lot of intentionality or thought put into it just based on the evolution of a company. And it's, it's impressive to me when a founder or a CEO recognizes that and really focuses on bringing in somebody who can help them develop the sales and marketing strategy for their company. I like that. I think, so my first thought when I, when I was reading through the, your notes was that I would assume that founders had to be good salespeople, but ultimately they're not, they're necessarily not, that's not always the case. Right. So, so then what's the solution there, right? Let's say that you start a brokerage or, you know, a, a third party logistics company, you've got a great concept. You've been able to prove that concept. And now, I mean, how do you tackle the sales piece to it? Do you, you, I mean, you mentioned the idea of bringing in a seasoned salesperson and, and having them make this or find the solution for you. But what is the best route in that case? And I know it's probably very dependent on the situation, but is it develop yourself? Is it to have somebody kind of help you out and coach you on it? I mean, what does that look like? And well, then ben, I, I want your take on it too, because you deal with this a lot in the coaching side. So what I would say is, first of all, I want to back up and understand that everybody in the company is in sales. So a founder is in sales. It's not that they're not. Um, it's just that what's their what's what's their real skill set? What's their value? What's their passion? Those types of things. Most founders, I would say, sales is not their passion, or else they'd be selling something else for somebody else. Their passion is their product that they've created, their, their the problem that they've solved, um, and they're able to you know, communicate that with passion. They're able to get some of those initial customers, but that's probably not where their strength is. Um, you know, and so when you think about the, the, the process moving forward, I think first of all, self-awareness is so critical. You know, a founder needs to understand what is my strength? What is my value? Where's my passion? Where am I going to be most effective in this company? Obviously having to, um, you know, do a lot, wear a lot of hats at the beginning. That's, that's normal. But when you get the opportunity to start developing the sales for your organization, what does that look like? I think, first of all, you need to find and partner with somebody who can give you some guidance. I would reach out to um, executives that you may know at companies. I reach, I talk to CSOs. I talk to VP of sales leaders. I talk to, you know, whatever title you want to put in that role. I start talking to people about the process, what all's included, getting a good understanding of what's happening. And through those conversations, you might find somebody that you're like, this is a good fit. Why don't you come yeah. and help us build this, you know, and do that. But secondly, you'll start to know what's needed. And I think that's the biggest point is that a lot of founders who aren't sales oriented, who aren't sales minded, don't even know really what's a part of the sales process or what's really needed. They don't understand the, the technology that they need to implement, the tools that a sales team would need. They don't understand where to get leads and how to prospect and, and develop those leads and, and put them through the, the sales cycle. What is the sales cycle? Um, you know, what, how are we going to acquire the new customer? Do we have an agreement in place that makes sense? Is the agreement too long? Is it too legalese? Can we make it simpler? There's just, there's so many aspects that I think that they'll gain that knowledge by just reaching out to network with other CSOs or VP of sales type of, of, of personnel to get that information. And then they're going to hopefully find that person that they can come in who can say, Hey, let's, 
you know, let's, let's organize this together. And the hard part is that that, that person is usually a pretty expensive hire. That's yeah. where equity comes into play. That's where incentivizing certain ways can come into play. But again, the more that you talk to CSOs and, and people in that position, the more you get a better understanding of what you need to do and who you need to hire in order to develop this part of your company. Yeah, that's, that's a good take on it. I've got a, I've got a follow-up response to you, but I want Ben's take on that too, as far as how someone can develop into that sales mindset. And Trey, I do love how you mentioned, uh, you know, talking with other folks who are in the same, you know, in a very similar role and they're in the same atmosphere as you, as far as the business goes and absorbing what you like about what they do and maybe, you know, learning what you don't like about what they do and kind of finding your own, your own version of it. But Ben, what's your take on it? I don't know. It, it's so it's such a big topic that like could probably go in like 20 different directions with it. I think the biggest thing with sales and companies in general is that there is, is exactly what Trey said is that there's not much intentionality behind any of it. It's everybody knows that sales is a number game to a degree, right? But it's also a number and a skill game. And I think as you go higher up these food chains and a lot of the companies, they start to lean on the number aspect because it's the only thing they have control over. They don't really have control over, or in some cases, an understanding of the subjective nature of selling, how to really build rapport, how to ask questions in a way that brings two human beings to communicate more effectively together, right? And when there's a lack of knowledge and a lack of information, we tend to lean on the things we do have. And the only tool anybody has is how many calls did you make? How long were you on the phone? So that becomes the only metric and like this overwhelming focus for everybody. And then it becomes as time passes, well, we'll work on our products. We'll work on all these things. Well, what are we doing with sales? Well, it doesn't matter. Just make sure they're making enough calls. If we touch enough people, they'll eventually buy stuff because we don't really know what to do anyway. And mm-hmm. like Trey and you both said is if you bring somebody in to do this, it's expensive and it's not expensive in the context of what you get in return. It's expensive in the right. context, comparing it to other expenses within the business. Yeah. And there's a great book Chet Holmes wrote. I don't even know how long ago, but he was one of the top sales guys for like Warren Buffett's companies in the eighties and nineties. And he talks about all these examples of where he's gone into huge companies and like increase sales by restructuring all of it, all the stuff we've talked about Uh to the tune of like 1100% over a year, like phenomenal growth numbers. And then he talks about how he gets into fights with CEOs about his comp. And they're like, well, we're paying you more than the CEO makes. And he's like, I know because the entire company has grown 1100% in a year. And I did drive that growth. So I should get a piece of it. And they're like, well, we can't have you making more than the CEO. And he's like, well, what is the CEO doing to increase sales a thousand percent? And they literally don't have an answer. They're like, well, he's got the top job, so he should make the most money. And to me, that sounds a hell of a lot like, well, that's because that's the way we've always done it. And that's the way we're going to continue to do it. So going back to Trey, Trey, back to one of your earlier points, I like how you said everyone is a salesperson and everyone is is a face for the company. And a great point in brokerage to relate this to is think about we talked about it last week, how your carrier reps, it's carrier sales. They, they are, they're not selling a product, but they are a sales role because they have to entice a carrier or, you know, ensure, assure a carrier that this is a good load for them to move. And another angle to that is think about your accounting department. They're, they are constantly in communication with your customer. It's not going to be the person tendering a load, but it's going to be the payables department who's paying the freight invoice, right? And if they have a bad experience with your 
AR team at your brokerage, that's a, that's a negative, negative, has a negative impact on your relationship with the customer. And that happens way more than it should. And that's super, that's super important. And it was the second caveat that I wanted to mention about what was Trey was talking about is that all of this is sales, right? How you interact with the other people within your company, how you talk to ops, how ops talks to accounting, how accounting communicates with their managers, all sales, right? How we interact with cares. But the bigger thing, and Trey alluded to this, is that sales in our industry is the customer facing role. It is also the prospect facing role. They are the people interacting with the markets. You can spend whatever you want on a website, but the reality is, is what really matters is what your employees are saying to the people they're speaking to when they talk to them. And that's the perception that your company is going to have in the market. And it, and it doesn't yeah. just go, it doesn't just go from the account rep or the broker. It, it's, it falls back to the accounting team or let's say the claims department or whoever, right? This is all, or carrier onboarding team. These are all people that are interfacing with um, other parties that you do business with. So, and the so other thing. I want to go back to something that, let me go back to something Ben said yeah. real quick too, because he talked about, you know, how, how the people really matter, you know, the salespeople that you get. It's, it's a combination, right, of people and processes that are, that are kind of put together. Because imagine this, just, just think about quarterbacks, for example. You take a quarterback like Sam Darnold, who, whatever you think about him, the, the, the people who evaluate quarterbacks think that he has a lot of potential, but he goes into a system, the New York Jets, and struggles, like the processes in place were poor. The coaching was poor. The training was poor. The system around him and the players, it wasn't built for success. And so a good personality, a good quarterback, a good talent didn't thrive. I think that's true of sales. You take a good sales rep and you give them bad processes. They're not going to thrive. They're going to get frustrated. They're going to quit. They're going to move on. You have to have both sides of the coin. You have to have the processes in place, the technology, the tools, and all of that in place. And then you need to find the right people, as Ben said, who are going to be the tip of the sphere. They're going to be the ones that are representing your brand and your product to the marketplace. And so they, they need to be quality individuals who know what they're doing as well. And you put those two together and that's the formula for success. There's a great book on this that I, I read when I was an intern at a bank. Um, guys, like 50 years my senior had us read this book. It's called Fish. Either one of you guys read it. It's a book based on the fish market in Seattle where they literally throw the fish from person to person. They yell. I've and seen that, comes but I haven't it. read the book. <laughs> so there's <laughs> yeah. like movies. There's a documentary on it. But this Never book and this premise, right? And I just pulled up the website. It's imagine a workplace where everybody chooses to bring energy, passion, and a positive attitude to the job every day. Imagine an environment in which people are truly connected to their work, their colleagues, and their customers. And this book, and it's great, and you can take a look at, pick up the book, it's an easy read or watch. I'm sure there's a YouTube video that summarizes it. But this fish market in Seattle, where like these people literally come they're just throwing fish from each person to person. Right. They're just yelling walk. the prices. That's right. But everybody feels so involved. Like the customers go there to be a part of it. It's an experience and everybody yeah. just interacts and has this energy and it becomes profitable and enjoyable and it just works, right? And this book really digs into all of the stuff that we're touching on and how when they all come together, you really get that synergy and that efficiency that really everybody's trying to reach with any type of company, right? You know, to, t- to touch on that, I think customer experience is also uh, uh, sorely lacking from the sales c- mindset. I mean, think about this. When Apple first came out with their Apple stores, and I don't, you know, I haven't been in Apple store in a long time. Pandemics obviously changed that. But when Apple first came out with their store, it was my favorite shopping experience. I wanted to go buy something just to go through the experience. I have an appointment there right? this afternoon. No exaggeration, at four o'clock today at the Apple store for my wife and I to go over there and take a phone <laughs> at. And it's funny because 
I do. I'm looking forward to it because I know that I know that they treat their customers differently than other companies. And like when I put it on my calendar, it wasn't something I had to do. It was something I was like, oh, that'll be kind of nice. I'm anxious to kind of talk to them and see what kind of other things they have coming out. There's a lot to be said about that. So, I mean, that's that's how a a certain brokerage company can set themselves apart from others. There's there's plenty of big name brokers (laughs) out there that have such a bad rapport in the industry because they're like, oh, you work at blah, blah, blah. Like we know how you guys are. And that just, that shows the opposite of the spectrum there. So I think there's a lot to be said. Well, why, do, why do people pass McDonald's and Taco Bell to go to Chick-fil-A? Why do people do that? Why do people pass Amico and Philip 66 to go to Quick Trip where I live? Why do people do that? It's for the customer experience. Yep. You know, and that is so important from a sales perspective because sales is not a one-time thing. It is an ongoing process. We talk, we're talking about the sales team today and kind of getting new customers. That's kind of the focus. But really, you have to think of sales holistically. That is so critical. So let's get, in, let's get into that, uh, that topic, Trey. So one, and to lead into it, one of the things that I thought of earlier in our conversation is you mentioned, I think, Ben, you might have mentioned that all they look at is the metrics, right? How many calls did you make? How long were you on the phone? Um, and I think, Trey, you mentioned that there's, there's maybe no uh, method to the madness or whatnot. One of the things I thought was funny early on is I was on a sales team of five people and I had to spend half as much time getting my leads generated and getting through my prospecting because I found a lot of technology and tools that made my job way more efficient. And I didn't like, you know, I had to pay for a lot of it myself because the company didn't provide it and I wasn't just going to give it out to everyone else. So my boss would be like, why, you know, why is it that you're only spending four hours a day with what they're spending eight hours a day doing? And it's like, well, I'm generating a lot of leads inbound now and I'm getting a lot of referrals and I have automatic um, follow-ups done through my own CRM and all this stuff. And eventually we adapt, adopted a lot of the stuff that I was using for the entire team. But I think there's a missing piece. A lot of that is you don't have to be stuck with what you've been doing for years. There's tools and tech out there and processes that make the job way more efficient and way easier. So that's kind of my lead off to it, but let's talk about that. The sales strategy, the Ben, it looks like you want to hop in yeah, here. Really because quick. I think there is something else too, that I wanted to mention as you talk through that, it made, it resonated with me is that I think the other reason that most higher level managers and why this is so prevalent of activity first and foremost is we're not saying activity is important. We're just saying it's one of the most important things. And without some of the other things, it doesn't really do you any good either. But the other piece is the fact that not only is it the only tool that they have, but there's also such high turnover, right? Because it's really hard to gauge whether or not somebody's going to be a fit. So the other side of this, and there's legitimate arguments like I've had with higher level executives, and I'm sure you've had the same, Trey, is, and Nate, is that they're like, well, you know, if we're going to hire 100 people this year, five of which you know will make it, how much money does it make sense to spend on people that won't be here in a year or two? And that's a, it's a valid other side of that coin because what you just said made me think about when I went through that seat and I went through a large company's training and it blew my mind because I had already hired a sales coach in a job before that. And I'm like, guys, like we know how to do these things. Like the psychologies out there, the sales techniques, the ability and the techniques and the processes as Trey pointed out, are readily available to apply to this industry. We are just not doing it. And to me, that was why why we have this podcast to begin with, why we're even on this journey was, for some reason, nobody's making that extra effort 
to take what is readily available and providing these resources to the people so that they can do a more effective job just like you did. It comes back to the word you said that we've been focusing on, which is intentionality, right? Intentionality um, kind of presupposes that you will take the time to find out what's out there, to, you know, research these, to implement these and pay for, I mean, it, it's, it's a, it's a very and that's after process. being open-minded. You've got to first be open-minded and willing to criticize or look at what you're doing and realize that it could always be done better. And if you can't do that, that's then right. you never get to the next stage, which is actually evaluating the other things. Yeah. Nate, let me jump on your point. So you talked about yep. how, you know, in your experience, you were able to do more and you know, with less time or with less, you know, activities or whatever. It's important to understand what metrics are for, what productivity metrics, you know, why, why do we do that? Why do we want to know how many calls they make? Why do we want to know how many emails they sent? Blah, blah, blah. Metrics like those are important when somebody's not performing. Agreed. It's, it's to better understand why they're not performing. But think about this. If you have one rep that may, takes 50 phone calls and he gets, you know, four appointments scheduled and you have another rep that makes 10 phone calls and gets four appointments scheduled, like, do you care? Like how many one or the other made? I mean, there's a reason why maybe one did less and maybe they have better, you know, process in place. I, I always think that metrics, again, are secondary. What's the end goal? What do we really want? You know, we and want them to drive revenue. Yeah. I don't care how many calls that takes. I really don't. What I want to look at though, is if you're not driving revenue, well, maybe there's a reason. Let's look at the metrics and find out where, you know, where you can improve. And I think if you're a sales team leader or a sales manager or, you know, whatever, if you're in that hierarchy up the chain in the sales world, that is a huge thing that you need to be listening to. And you should consider that when you look at your reps, right? Because I, in that same scenario that I mentioned, they didn't look at, production as the number one identifier of how successful you are. And I think that your numbers should speak for themselves. And secondary, like you said, Trey, would be if if your numbers aren't there, well, let's look at the metrics and figure out why that is the case, right? So yeah. to say, like you said, the person that can close those four or get four appointments in just 10 calls versus the other rep that had way more calls to get the same four appointments, they're the outcome and the results are still the same regardless of how they got there. So I don't think you beat that person up for only making the 10 calls. And I, I that's a well, huge takeaway that sales and, leaders want And I want to touch on that because this is where as a sales leader, you have to understand that you are leading humans. You're leading people. You're not leading robots. You know, what if you hire somebody who has built an amazing LinkedIn network, you know, would you want them only making phone calls all day? Or would you want them trying to, you know, work in their LinkedIn network to generate opportunities. You hire somebody else who doesn't have a LinkedIn network. Well, clearly, you know, maybe they should do it at night on the side, but they probably need to be hitting the phones more. Or let's say you hire somebody who's really good on the phones and you hire somebody who maybe is better with, you know, other forms of communication. Like you have to be open that not everybody's metrics are going to be the same. What you need to figure out is how can I help this person be effective with what they have, with their skill set, with their passions, with what they bring to the table? How can I help them be successful? That's the point of a sales leader. Yep. And I think you brought up a good point is that you're leading human beings, right? We're not robots in the sales world. So when somebody is struggling or going through that, that little bit of a, you know, the pit in their sales cycle where they're not closing a lot of deals or getting a lot of opportunities, it's not just make more calls, right? Take, take an actual uh, subjective look at their situation and, and talk through it strategically with them. Like Ben, remember you always say like the best salespeople don't always make the best sales leaders because they're just really good at their, the way that they have done things, right? It doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that everyone else in their company 
is going to operate most efficiently with that strategy, right? Well, right. And because, I mean, there's so many different variables. So activity is just a litmus test, right? You use it to see, okay, is the effort and the energy being output to create any type of opportunity? Okay. If there's some reasonable number, then we can ask the next question. What is being said during that activity, right? And like you said, there's so many people that get promoted because they're performers. That is the sales world. You get to manager by producing the most. But the reality is, is one, not everybody is aware of how they got there. Just because they got to what they feel is the promised land doesn't mean they know how they got there. And it certainly doesn't mean they have the ability to get somebody else out there. Those are three 100%. different skill sets. <laughs> yep. But we just don't ever ask that question. It's just like, hey, this person's killing it. We're going to make them a manager instead of actually asking them like, hey, first off, do you have a desire to cultivate other human beings or to help them reach this? Is that even something you're interested in doing? Because the only question that I ever see get asked in this industry is, do you want the stable job? Do you want to leave brokering and having to work 24 hours a day to take a solid salary? And that's the, the reason people make the decision to go into management, not because they're a fit, not because they enjoy it, and not necessarily because there's even a desire to do it. It's just, they're just tired of being on the phone and on call 24 hours a day. So that's the only place for them to go. I would even say this. I would go so far as to say this. If you had 10 people on a sales team and you, you know, you have the spectrum of the high performers and maybe people who aren't, aren't doing quite as well. I would say that the person with the best potential to be a sales manager is probably not somebody at the top. Right. It might be somebody in the middle who's like the best team player yes. who's helping everybody out, who has a different, has a different skill set. And, you know, that's contrary to what people do. They think, oh, this guy is the best sales leader. He's in line to be the leader. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong, but you, it's a different skill set. If you want that person to be a sales leader, you better give them the training, the tools, and the opportunity to grow into that because they may not have the skills naturally. They may be a jerk. They may, they may Adam, be a competitive, passionate jerk. You're right. Adam Grant did a great interview on his podcast months ago on, and I can't remember the NBA player's name that played on the championship team with LeBron. I can't remember even which team it was, but he was like, LeBron like, has it, hopped around. Yeah. And he was like, he was like a, a really like a little bit above average, but like was never a high scorer. Like I said, at best he was like a B minus player, but when they put him in with two or three star players, he was one of the best supporting players in the NBA. And I'll find his name and I'll reference it. We could throw it in the show notes, but he interviews this guy and he's like, look, like, what is it? And he's like, look, I know my value is to support them and getting where they go. He's like, my role isn't to shoot the most shots. It's to get the team where they needs to go. And it just reminded me of exactly what you're saying. Like, it's not always the top performer that is going to make the best coach. Like, it's not going to necessarily no, I mean, mean the think best, about this. The best let's, manager. Let's, let's use your NBA analogy, all right? Who are some of the best managers, best head coaches that we've seen over the years? Phil Jackson, decent player for New York, not the best, yep. right? He was okay. Teron Liu, decent player, you know, coming off the bench, started a few years in Washington, for the Washington Wizards. Pat Riley, decent player, not the best. Like, you think about this, not, I mean, mm -hmm. think about um, Andy Reid for Kansas City, former NFL football player. Wasn't the best. Nobody knew about him as a player. Everybody knows about him as a coach. You have to yep. think differently when you think about leadership versus producers. So important. They're just very different jobs. It's a good point. Yeah, it is. So what's the, uh, how does lean approach this, right? So we actually, like, for example, Ben and I had somebody ask a question on the lunch and learn yesterday that someone that runs their own brokerage and is wondering, how do I, you know, as I grow, how do I put the right people in place? And we actually, we mentioned the hiring 
strategy of it. And we, we even said lean, we even, you know, we threw your name in the hat there. Love right? it. Appreciate but, it. Uh, so <laughs> Appreciate I'm curious it. when someone's looking to put a focus on that sales side, what, how do you guys, what's the approach that you guys take on that? Yeah. So we, we take the role as being a partner for, you know, a freight brokerage for transportation company to help them grow in that, that area. So we do an assessment with the company and see what they have in place, what processes do they have in place? Have they really thought through it? Do they have somebody who is managing that process or a leader in that position? And then, you know, based upon that, where we fit in. And what we do at Lean is we, we tell people, we put the numbers game back in their favor because a lot of times these companies don't have time to make the calls. If you're, if you're booking a lot at lows, let's just do, you know, uh, account management. If you're an agent, a freight brokerage agent, eventually you run out of bandwidth and getting new customers because you're spending all your time servicing your existing customers. You don't have time anymore. And so, you know, we, we want to help in that process and we do it in a really effective way uh, by helping them set up a satellite office in Columbia with their own lead generation team, who's going to be making those calls and warming up leads, identifying and qualifying potential, you know, customers, and then scheduling those appointments with a U.S.-based sales team. That, you know, think about this. If you're going to hire a U.S. sales professional at, let's just say, $50,000 base salary and commissions on top of that, do you want them spending all their time trying to, you know, call through a leads list that is half junk, you know, two-thirds junk and not good? Or would you rather them spending their time actually talking to prospects who are interested? I would rather have them spend time with prospects who know my company, who have an interest, who are a potential buyer, and, you know, have them do a 15 to 20-minute call with them, do 20 of those a day, as opposed to making 100 calls. We do the 100 calls for you. You know, we do that process in conjunction with your team. It's not an outsourcing. This team is dedicated to you. They're going to work for you every day. You're going to provide them with your technology, with your CRM, with your leads, and then they're going to work for you. And so So our goal is to basically come alongside and partner and help companies in in that way. So let me ask you this one. I'm going to kind of reverse it, right? So let's say we'll go with the agent again. Let's say you're an agent. You've got a ton of business. Like you said, you're out of bandwidth. You've got a lot of irons in the fire, but you, you're you afraid to close and bring on these new customers because you don't have the bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Could you also, I, you know, let's say you go with the nearshore model with, with someone like Lean, right? Can you bring somebody in to manage, start to transition existing account management day-to-day to them while you then as the agent go out and close more business? Could you do it where they're not, Absolutely. you're still the one doing the the calling and all that and prospecting, whereas your sales reps are then handling your day-to-day existing customers. Is that Correct. an option? Or those, are, that- those are two, those are two situations. So to okay. go back to what right. I was saying earlier, it's not just lead generation. They can actually go and acquire and manage, start managing business. We have transportation freight brokerages in our stable of customers where their BDRs down in Colombia are literally doing the full sale and starting to manage that account. Okay. Uh, that's an option as well. But the situation you're talking about, this is where, again, self-awareness comes into play. If you're an agent out there, um, you, you have to know, am I a salesperson or am I an operations guy? Where, where am I best? Where, where am I most excited, most passionate, and most joyful? So if they want to sell again, then we would look at lean staffing to help them with the operations side, you know, to help with the, you know, data entry, you know, booking loads, tracking loads, all that. that that's what that side is for. If they're more operational minded and they love that side of the business, then we can help on the sales side. So we offer a little bit of both, but they're two different situations. And I think it's just critical for an agent or even for a company just to have self-awareness about you know, where they're strong and then we can supplement where they're, where they're not. And I think one, um, I know we got to get into marketing here still too, but one, one more thing I want to say on sales is when you do bring other folks in to never lose total touch or control or representation of your image as either an agent or a brokerage owner or whatever um, down the road, because you don't want somebody else. No one's going to care about your book of of business as much as you do. And I think 
one of the things that you had told us about, you know, this is probably months ago is that when you, when you get a, a new broker or an agent that's on board with lean and you're matching candidates up with them, that per the, your customer has say, and a lot of autonomy in that decision of who's the right fit for them, right? You're not just plugging and playing whatever Joe Schmo is available, you know, in your Columbia. Oh, absolutely. They're part of that process. We're truly a partner and we just make it headache free is what we like to say. We just make this a headache free process. We do the recruiting, we schedule interviews with our clients so they can interview these candidates and decide who they want to bring on board. Once they make the choice, then we do the onboarding process. We get them set up with HR and benefits and payroll. We handle all that. We do some initial training because we've got best practices in transportation logistics over the last eight years. So we give them a great foundational training on logistics, especially if they're new to the industry. From a sales perspective, we also give them some sales training if they need it. Although most of the people we hire have three to seven years of experience. And then we transfer them over, we hand them over. And then they're now, you know, our client's job to manage and train and work with them on a day-to-day basis, put them in their Slack channel. Obviously they have an email address or they're going to do Zoom calls or maybe morning scrum meetings or whatever they're going to do. They're managing them directly. We're, we're really just a true partner in this entire yeah. process. I think that's huge. And I think one of the, you know, even in the, the, the standard hiring model, I've seen too many companies that HR does the hiring and they're like, the sales team leader or whoever, like, oh, I'm too busy. Like, can you interview this person for me? It's like, you should be involved yeah. in that process. You need to make sure they're okay <laughs> for your organization. Otherwise, that's you're going to have that, that, the, that salary the process is, or whatever it is. Yeah, that's the situation where I'd say the process has not been thought through or is not in place. So there's not yeah. enough bandwidth, you know, the, the, to do that. So, and the last point I'd make is this before we move transition is it's important for uh, companies just to be mindful of the fact that they're going to need a CRM. Don't don't have people working off of spreadsheets. You're going to want data in a CRM. If you're not using one, we can help out with that. We also offer CRM administrators to help out with that. They're going to want a data source. We've got partnerships with Zoom Info and some other, you know, data providers if they need that, uh, but they're going to own the data and it's going to be theirs. And we have data researchers as a another position that we offer. So we're really trying to partner with them and help them as much as we can if they don't have some of these things in place. Uh, but at the end of the day, they have to own the process. So I like how you you had this the CRM um, pointer there because going into marketing, I think that is a tool that I think both the marketing and the sales team can both use in conjunction with one another. Because And I think 100%. like a company like a HubSpot, right? Like HubSpot has a marketing um portion within their platform, right? Where they can produce their lead gen forms or all kinds of email campaigns and stuff like that. And this, and they can help funnel leads into the sales team and the sales team then can move them down their pipeline, track their activity, phone calls, emails, schedule follow-ups, all that stuff. I personally, I'm a huge HubSpot guy myself. I know there's a lot of good CRMs out there, but like you said, if you don't have a CRM, I mean, you are, you're you're wasting so much, so much effort yeah. on tasks yeah. that don't have to be well, and, wasted. And, and maybe some of the people listening or, or, you know, or like me for, for years as a sales professional, I only thought of CRM for, for salespeople. I didn't even realize there was a marketing component to it. In the last three or four years, I've began to understand that now these go hand in hand. I mean, you know, in sales and marketing is really kind of one division. We're going to talk about that a little bit, how the lines have really blurred between sales and marketing, but a CRM is really critical to both, you know, the sales and the marketing efforts because they need to work in a connected fashion. Agreed. Agreed. So Ben, do you have anything before I, I had a question for Trey on this one, but no, it all right. So Trey, I want to, so the, the lean marketing side of it, where does mm-hmm. that plug in? And then let's get a discussion going around it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. You know, all of our all of our product lines, all of our divisions were created by customers asking us to help out. And this is another one where a lot of transportation and logistics companies don't have a lot of marketing uh, initiatives in place. They may not have a marketing budget even. They might not have any marketing personnel. I know a lot of sales managers who are designated with managing social media or, yep. hey, go get us a new website or whatever it might be. That happens a lot. And so again, it, it grew out of a need, um, you know, for, for companies to, understand marketing and, and to start putting it in place and, and, you know, understanding how marketing is different than sales marketing as we always like to say is a one to many approach. It's a brand approach. It's a, a comfort and, a, and an awareness type of a, of initiative where sales is one-to-one and it's transactional, you know, let's go ahead and get you on board with us with a solution that actually fits you. So just understanding the difference is really important. I work hand in hand with Ryan Mann, who's our director of lean marketing. We talk about this a lot about, you know, if you're going to have a lead generation strategy and you don't have a marketing component as a part of that, you're missing half of the equation because, you know, lead generation is often outbound, but there's an inbound component that you need to have it's a harder strategy. It's a more difficult strategy. It's a long-term strategy. You're not going to turn on your website and all of a sudden start getting a hundred inbound right. leads a day. More than likely, it's going to take a while and it requires producing content and making your customers aware. But if you look at the best brands, and we already talked about this with Apple, but if you look at the best brands, you know, why, why do, why do companies like Doritos do commercials at the Super Bowl for $5 million for 30 seconds? Is it because they're going to drive a lot of new revenue? Yeah. It's because they're, it's, it's a brand awareness. It's a comfort. It's a, yeah, I know Doritos. I'm, ooh, Doritos are good. Maybe I'll go, you know, it's like, it's, there's a, there's a reason they do that as opposed to just calling your house saying, Hey, do you need some more Doritos? So people need to understand <laughs> this approach is, is important. And a lot of transportation logistics companies haven't done that. But you think about social media. I mean, how many truckers now live on Facebook, oh especially on operators? We see it in right? our group I mean, all the time now. All, all over. You know, how many trucking companies and brokerages and shippers have a presence on LinkedIn now? How many? I mean, everybody has a website now. When you, when you think about working with a company, the first thing you do is Google them and see if they have a website, see what they have there, which is their real estate. I mean, it's like house buying. You know, ninety-five percent of house buyers look on websites before they ever go to a house. And it might be even higher than that. You have to understand the value of these things and why they're important to not only gain new business, but then to, you know, retain you know, your business. So that's where it comes in. That's what we're doing is we're offering an agency style marketing offering. So let's say you have one marketing personnel, but you really need more marketing services. We can supplement that with the direction of your marketing lead to provide SEO optimization or create content like blogs or video content or update your website or, you know, create a new logo and refresh your brand. All those things are available. And we also do staffing on the marketing side. So maybe you want to have a dedicated graphic designer. We'll staff that down in Columbia with some incredible talent that we have as well. So it just depends on which way you want to go on that. I think what's interesting is, and you had a note in here about how the, the lines have blurred between sales and marketing. And you mentioned how a lot of salespeople have worn the marketing hat. So in the past, I, I was with a company that switched marketing. I, I guess we went through like three different directors in the handful of years that I was there. And then the directors, sometimes they had a team, sometimes they didn't, but either, either way, you, you have a gap between when that director leaves, and when you hire a new one, and then there's still that gap between when that new one starts and when they're fully operational. So I naturally had to put a marketing hat on myself. I started doing the social media interaction, writing blogs, sending out email campaigns. And it wasn't just a salesy email it was here's some great content. Maybe it was a part, a 
clip from a blog or um, a post I had or a you know even a podcast episode, giving sending out that information to your community of your contacts. So you're offering value, good brand recognition. They think about, oh, that's Nate. He always gives good information. And then there's always a call to action in there. So I kind of blurred the, the marketing and the sales together. And then I that's where I generated a lot of my inbound leads without needing a marketing team or person to do that. And without having to cold call a ton, that's how I got so efficient was to make myself a reputable person that offers value. Whether or not someone was going to work with me, the majority of them don't. But when you start to do that, it gets so much easier over time. And it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lot of intentionality and effort over a long period of time, but it's very fruitful. Yeah, no, absolutely. And let me let me define what I mean by the, the lines between sales and marketing have blurred. When I started my career, it was actually a DAT, one of your sponsors, um, yep. DAT Freight Analytics. I got a chance to start there. And the sales team was really kind of isolated and the marketing team was isolated. I think this was pretty common back in the day. The marketing team would do campaigns. Those campaigns would drive leads to our website. The website would generate leads that would then be distributed to sales reps. And then we'd, we'd call and we'd close. Like there was, there was two, two, you know, the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing back then. It was very um, not divisive, but it was just very segmented in, mm-hmm. in how it worked. Now it's very different because of social media, because of LinkedIn. So when I say the lines that have blurred, what I mean is we're now asking sales reps to do what you just described. Yep. which you did it out of necessity. We now do it just because it's best practices. And that is, you know, whenever we have a post on LinkedIn for our, from our, for our marketing team that maybe do a post for Lean Solutions Group, we've noticed that if, if, a, if a sales rep will take that exact same content and create their own post, it gets a much bigger reach because they have a network. Um, their customers are connected with them probably in a way that they're not connected with our brand page. And so now our, you know, our best sales reps are putting things on LinkedIn. Sometimes it's content about our company. Sometimes it's content just about our industry. Sometimes it's something fun. But what it's doing is it's generating goodwill. It's generating awareness. It's creating knowledge. It's creating value, like you said, for free. And sometimes without an ask. Sometimes with an ask and sometimes without. And I think that's the other part of it too is, you know, buyers don't want to be asked to buy every time you put something in their face, right? Sometimes you just want to put something in their face to make them feel good, to give them knowledge, to help them out, to be seen as an expert, to be seen as somebody that's trusted without an ask, because innately that's going to become a trigger for them to reach out to you when they have a need, because they're going to remember that. So, you know, we do, we try to do a good job of getting our sales reps to do uh, online activities, social media activities, LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever, posting things about the company, but also just being real about who they are. Um, and maybe even posting a video about something else or sharing something fun, because I, I'll always go back to this buyers at the, at the core want to do business with people that they like, people who are cool, people who are fun, people they want to be around, you know, they're, you're building a relationship here, especially in transportation logistics. So why not let them get to know you and get comfortable with you? Why not do that? You know, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a unfortunate when sales leaders are like, I don't want my sales guys spending time on LinkedIn. You know, I want them. I want them just calling and emailing. I think that's a detriment. Let me ask you a question, Trey. Why do you think, um, because you asked the question and it was like a rhetorical question. You said, you know, why not do this? Why do you think so many transportation companies, so many trucking companies, so many brokerages are so last to the dance to update their website, to spend money on marketing? I think it's it's too lag behind everything else. 
Yeah, I think it's twofold. One, I think there's probably um, a, a thought that this is not necessary. Like if I'm a, if I'm a trucking company, you know, I know the shippers out there. I've you know I've got the load boards. I can just reach out and find business. And mm-hmm. I think there's this idea that there it's not needed, or just not understanding the value of what it yeah could not do not for worth the cost. Their brand. Well, that's value, big, right? I, I that's, think the second thing I said is yes. And what was the second thing? Well, my second. My second thing that I would say is I don't think that they budget for it. I don't. I really don't think they 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 make a plan to do it. Is what I would say. I mean, I, you know, when you think about your budget, especially with like, let's just use trucking companies. Their operating ratios are already, you know, crazy slim in terms of what they have available. And a lot of times they they probably. I mean, this is probably the last last thing that they consider is valuable. Probably just because of a lack of understanding of what marketing can do for your company. Well, and I think a lot of it is. So one is there's an there's an adage that's way older than any of us that in marketing, 50% of it works, 50% of it doesn't. The problem with marketing is you never know which 50% is working and which 50% isn't. And that's been an <laughs> adage that's as old as a newspaper, right? Everybody has known that since the time in memoriam. But the second thing is, I think there's also a tendency to think about big level marketing as like, unattainable. Like you said, the Super Bowl, and it's a great example, right? Because companies literally are advertising there not to call you to action to buy their product, but so that every time you see the Super Bowl, you associate that good feeling of the Super Bowl with their brand. It allows you to become more comfortable and to trust them. And I think people think of it as if like they need millions of dollars to achieve that same thing. And the reality is, is a freight broker sending an email with their information on it after a phone call is marketing. It's letting them see your brand. It's getting them more comfortable seeing your name. It's the same reason why every realtor has their face on the side of their car and on their business card and on a park bench in South Florida. Because every time you see their face subconsciously, you become a little more comfortable with actually doing business with them. And it doesn't have to be a $30 million ad spot. It can absolutely be an updated website. It can be an email. It doesn't need to be it this can outlandish be a free thing anymore. Thirty-second commercial on LinkedIn, like the value yeah, of LinkedIn yeah. is totally undervalued. I mean, think about that. If you build a network on LinkedIn and you provide a, a sixty-second video that you pay a hundred dollars to produce or two, I mean, that's huge, right? But there's an emotional component to buying that a lot of companies just don't associate with the transportation world for whatever reason, they don't think about that. But if you have a shipper who really needs something moved and is desperate, who are they gonna call first? They're gonna call somebody that they know, that they trust, that they're comfortable with. Like that's gonna be the first person they're gonna reach out to. And that may be you, or that may be somebody else who's creeping in because they're doing marketing. They're making their presence known, they're making their brand known. I I just think that, yeah, go ahead. I think the other big reason is, I think in transportation, everybody's very short-term focused. And I've talked with some- Transactional. Yes, and one of of your, Um, colleagues and investors, um, Justin said this in an interview and he was the first person that pointed this out. And then I've heard, I think Brad Jacobs, the CEO of XPO say the same thing. Transportation is the only large industry that has no first mover advantage. If you get there first, you don't get to swallow up everything and have a monopoly because it's constantly changing, right? But when you think about it like that, then they start justifying doing nothing, right? And then they end up in places where they have literally no marketing, no presence. And when their brokers are reaching out to shippers and the shippers are just, hey, I want to see if it's a credible company. And they go to the website and they're like, well, honestly, like it kind of looks like it's 20 years old. Like, I was going to say, what's worse, a bad website or no website? I'm actually curious what you guys think about that. 
Uh, it's a good question. I mean, no website looks really, you know, uh, sketchy, uh, <laughs> but a bad website just gives an image that, you know, you're, <laughs> they're both not, you're not good, not, I guess. Know, they're both not good. I mean, it's like saying, is, is it better to have no retail location or to have a retail location where the sign's falling off? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I, probably the retail location where the sign's falling off, at least you can find them, right? At least you yeah. can go in and talk to them. But, and I think, though, that uh, there's so yeah. many other tools with that now, like whether it's to utilize Lean, but like you can build a website over a weekend now. You can find somebody on Fiverr if it's you're easy really bootstrapped yeah. and you can spend yeah. $50 to have somebody get you a wireframe up so you have something. Like there are so many options to be able to do this even if you are on a shoestring budget that like there's yeah. you really should have something out there so that people can at and least see who you are i'm glad you mentioned that because i think that the first place to start so so people might be asking okay so mark it's important where do i start right i think yep. the first place you start is your website because that is your retail location on the internet you know virtually anybody can see it anybody can 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 you know get an idea of your company and what you value and who you are a picture of your leadership team and your values and your service and offerings and how to get in touch with you i mean it doesn't take like you said you could you could get that done in a weekend if you really wanted to i mean godaddy or wordpress or these other places you could get started right away and then from that foundation that's where you start to explore other avenues of I want to I want to you know create a blog or I want to start white papers that link back to it I want to send out you know email marketing and they all link back to it and you have a landing page where you generate leads or you have people you know call to actions it all starts there with the website and I would encourage people to do that and then start thinking about the overall strategy growing from that uh, that that would be my advice love it love it any final thoughts on marketing before we get into our Q and A session here. Crickets. Okay. I guess that's it. Well, I'll say this because I think this is important. No matter what size company you are, no matter where you're at in the process, become intentional about your sales and marketing approach, whatever it is, become intentional about it. And if you need help, reach out to people who are experts, reach out to us. We'll just give you advice. A lot of times we're, you know, we coach people through what they need. We'll often tell people, Hey, I don't think you're ready for lean sales yet because you don't have a CRM in place. Let's get that in place. Let's help you out with that. Um, or let's, let's just get the process started from marketing perspective. Like I said, let's just do something and get the ball rolling. And that's a great place to start. So no matter your budget, no matter your size, no matter where you are in the process, existing company established or a new company, be intentional about your sales and marketing efforts because it will pay huge dividends. It may not be tomorrow, but it may be later this year. It may be next year. It may take your company to places that you didn't even think were possible. I like it. Good stuff. So we got, we got three questions for Q&A today, but first we got to talk about our friends over at DAT. Take the guesswork out of freight with DAT. The DAT Load Board Network is the largest on-demand freight marketplace in North America, connecting brokers with available capacity on any lane. Grow your business with tools that allow you to find new business partners, plus you can quickly qualify and onboard new carriers. Freight 360 is partnered with DAT to offer your first month for free. Check out the links in our episode notes or check out our website at freight360.net to learn more. Here are our three questions. All right, number one. And let's see, how can I price over-dimensional loads or find permit costs for over-dimensional loads? So I'm going to let Ben tackle this one, but first I will say that there are some tools out there that can help you with this, but there's a better way. Ben, what do you got? My strategy to this was the same as prospecting. Learn from the people that specialize in this. So the OD and everything I learned and everything I learned about flatbeds were from the carriers. So as soon as I got a quote or I started looking at it and I had a you know potential prospect that wanted an OD load, 
I'm calling five or six either local or OD carriers that I think are going to fit that criteria and just play 20 questions. Ask them for them to put a quote together. Tell them this is my first load. Ask them any advice they have. Ask them how they're quoting it. And then once I get the quote, go through it with them. And then I go through it with the next carrier and then I ask them and I compare them. Hey, is the pilot cars the same rate? We're looking at the same thing per mile. What's changing? Why is these, why are these permits different than this carrier? And once you've got three or four of these to look at, you should have a pretty good idea of how they came up to it. If you've asked insightful questions and that's literally how I learned how to do it. Relying on the people that literally do this all day long. It's a good point. And I, so someone had asked a similar question about the expedite world and they weren't familiar with, what does a sprinter van cost or what is a box truck or a straight truck cost? And that was the same, that was the exact advice was, you know, just translated into instead of OD, it was the expedite world contacting the carriers that have that equipment type and can move that type of uh, freight, getting quotes on it and then finding out where the commonalities are and maybe where there's discrepancies between the two. And you can start to understand what cost, you know, the rates per mile and how they compare to full truckload or what is the cost to run this lane? You'll, you'll start to pick that up. That's a great way to do it. I dig it. All right. Next question. What insurances would be best to get to make a new business seem serious and secure? So this is a broker that's obviously new um, and trying to figure out what insurances do I need to get to seem serious? Okay. Well, first of all, your customer is realistically going to dictate the policies that you're going to need to have. Because at a minimum, as a licensed freight broker, you only really need to have a surety bond, which is technically an insurance policy. You could even have that freight broker trust fund, which acts as the same, you know, the same uh, tool. You don't need to have general liability or you don't need to have contingent cargo or contingent auto. Your customer is probably going to require those in a lot of cases, though. So what insurances do you get? Find out what all the big shippers out there are requiring. It's probably going to give you an idea of what most good reputable brokers have in place. Any other thoughts around the horn on uh, insurances? No? Yes? No? Okay. No, I agree with you on that and on the OD. You just got to talk to the experts, talk to people who know and 100%. talk to enough of them. They have a good sample size. Yep. Last question is what are the general pros and cons of brokering and what are some helpful tips for the total newcomer? I want to hear it around the horn on this one. So uh, good, Dre. You can lead off. Yeah, Trey, what do you think? What's the pros and cons of brokering freight? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the pros of, of freight brokering is that, you know, there's the, the, the pie just keeps growing. More pies keep getting made. There's a ton of opportunity, you know. So if you're working hard and you're doing a great job uh, building relationships with, with customers and with carriers, the sky's the limit. You can make a lot of money, which is awesome. The cons would be, you know, freight, you know, transportation doesn't stop at 5 p.m. You know, it, it doesn't stop uh, for the weekends, you know? So there's, there's a lot of work that sometimes has to be done at all other hours. And you have to decide if you're committed to that or not, because I think if you're going to be a successful freight broker, you have to be committed to servicing your customers when they need to be serviced. It's kind of like a real estate agent. Do you, if you want to be a real estate agent, you're gonna have to work Saturdays and Sundays. Are you okay with that? And if you are, then great, you're going to do a great job. And if you're not, then you're going to struggle um, or you're going to need to build the team up to hire people who, who will do that. Um, you know, so just understanding the expectations of what's there. I wouldn't necessarily guess say it's a con, but it's definitely something to consider. It's uh, you have to understand if you're willing to make those sacrifices. And then I think there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of volatility in, in 
brokerage just from the standpoint that the market shifts quite a bit, especially in the last four or five years. So can you handle, you know, volatility in, in market conditions? Can you handle different situations? I mean, most freight brokers I talk to, and I've sat in that chair uh, for a little bit myself, but most freight brokers I talk to say every day is different and new and you have to be ready for new challenges. Uh, so, you know, again, I don't know if those are pros or cons, but certainly I think no, that's great. eyes wide open, make sure that, you know, you're, you're up for the task of, of what's being you know, requ- required. Ben, what do you got? Look around you, wherever you're at right now, wherever you're listening to this, everything that you see around you arrived where it is right now at some point in time on a truck. So that was probably uh, probably scheduled by a broker. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Huge opportunity. It's growing and growing, right? And Trey hit on a lot of the really good cons. I mean, you've got to be there to service your customer when they need it, not when it's convenient for you. That's one of the drawbacks. I would say... I don't necessarily know that it's a drawback, but the one thing that I always try to impress upon people that are looking at getting into this industry is you will earn every dollar you receive, you have to work for. Nobody's going to give you any of it. When you start in this industry, the biggest con is the shippers are going to want to pay you less than what your carriers are going to want to run it for. And if you realize that these two things are in the exact opposite place of where they need to be to actually run a profitable business, you'll realize that's the con is that you've got to literally convince the shippers to pay you more and the carriers to do it for less until you've got a margin that you can live on. That's the biggest drawback is you have to earn every dollar. Solid. Yep. I, I agree with both of you on that. I will say they also ask for helpful tips. My biggest tip for anybody that's new in brokerage or if you're considering getting into it is to talk with somebody that's doing it. And if you can shadow them, you know, there's, there's, a, there's opportunities. If you know someone that's a broker and that's what piqued your interest, if you can't do it in person, just hop on a Zoom for an hour here, an hour there throughout their day. See what it sounds like when they're talking with the customer. See what it sounds like when they're prospecting. See what it sounds like when they're booking a carrier and dispatching or doing check calls. That stuff will give you an idea of what it's like to be a broker. And you'll also see that they're just sitting behind a computer. That's one of the cons for a lot of people is that you are very, I guess, sedentary in your day-to-day life. So I've always found that um, in this industry, the, the folks that will get their workouts in early morning or late night or take a lunch break to do it and have it scheduled will be much happier because they don't feel like they're just oh, behind the computer all day long on the phone. That's my tip. I would, and I would add to that, you know, you talked about talking to other brokers or shouting other brokers. I think it's paramount for brokers at the beginning and throughout the history or the, the course of their business to make the time to talk to shippers and talk to carriers and get their honest feedback. I would even say shippers and carriers that you're not working with who yeah. will give you honest feedback of what it's like from their perspective, working with brokers, what they like, what they don't like, what makes their job easier, what makes it harder, and really understand the perspective of those two sides of the coin that have been referenced earlier of how can I best work with shippers? How can I best work with carriers from their perspective? I think that's so helpful. I like that. That's good. Good stuff. Good episode. Any uh, final thoughts around the horn here? I don't know. Big weekend coming up, but this is probably my favorite weekend in sports. And I'll tell you why. We've got the uh, final four, which is exciting. And it goes right into the Masters. Hello, friends. Very excited about that. So um, looking forward Baseball to this weekend sports. as well. And baseball starts as Opening well. Opening so day, it's a, it's a good April time 1st, which so, is tomorrow. So this is actually a question. 
this is a question that we could end on is what's the better season of sports? Is it the springtime? Like right now where you're getting the start of baseball, you're getting the masters, you're getting March madness. You're starting in playoffs for NBA and NHL. Is this the best time or is the fall the best time when you have the start of football, the world series, college football, you're all fall. fall. I'm I'm a huge football guy. I'm, I'm spring. This is, this is my time right now. I'm going to be smiling for the rest of the, you know, for the rest of the month and, and well into April. They're both good times, but I, I'm a, I'm going to take fall. Ben, what do you got? I'm a golf fan and they just keep moving around the majors. So golf season's long enough that like, it kind of feels like golf. <laughs> <laughs> he's riding the fence, riding the fence, but listen, Hey, the majors are more into spring than fall now. The, the majors are now April, May, June, July, instead of, you know, there's nothing in August. So I'm going to put you the majority in the of my category. life. It was fall though. I've always been more of an NFL fan, especially growing up. But when I was in Pittsburgh, like we used to get super fired up. All my buddies would get together every Sunday for all of the Steeler games. Like when I'm, when I'm where I grew up, where all of really my colleagues and friends are like, it was definitely fall for me. <laughs> Same enough. here, man. I, I live in Orchard Park, New York. If you look up the Bills stadium, well, actually it's been just rebranded as uh, Highmark Stadium. That is in Orchard Park, New York, 2.7 miles as the bird flies from my house. I only know that because I have one of those like big sticks in my or poles in my backyard that has like the uh, pallet arrow signs like they have at the beach that points to all the different destinations. You know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. A, I might see it this summer. I'm actually going to be in Buffalo. So I'm hoping to kind of see Good. that. We'll have to connect while I'm up there. But, uh, I've never yeah. been up that way. Haven't seen Niagara Falls. Haven't really seen that part of the country. So really looking forward to it. There you go. Good stuff. All right. Great episode, Ben. Whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. And until next episode, go Bills. That wraps up this episode of Freight 360. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to check out all the other episodes for even more great content. Check out the show notes for links to any articles and content that we referenced on this episode. Visit us on the web at www.freight360.net. And if you'd like to learn more about a new home for your agency, contact me directly. And if you'd like to learn more about me coming out to run a free complimentary sales training for your team, check me out on LinkedIn or again at www.freight360.net.